This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And I have with me today... Jordan Stefaniak, and we're going to be talking about uh, his podcast. We're going to be talking about Baptist theologian John Gill, and and who who knows where else we'll go, but it'll certainly be connected to uh, what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. Jordan, thanks for being on the podcast. Man, I'm pumped to be here. Awesome, brother. Well, hey, let's start with some bio. Tell us just a little bit about who you are, how you came to know the Lord, and then how you got into ministry. So I guess I don't know what to describe myself as, I do like 10 different things at once. I do too much stuff, but I, I mean, I have, I have a normal day job mm-hmm. that I, I work during the day doing data analysis sort of stuff. Most people think that's boring. I think it's kind of cool actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but the stuff me. that I'm super passionate about is related to theology and philosophy. So I've got a couple of different irons in the fire. I am a research fellow for the Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, being part of their really awesome project on theological anthropology. It's a three-year project that they've got funding from the John Templeton Foundation. And it's really cool what they're doing. They're putting a lot of a lot of resources that I think are going to serve the church as well as pastors. So it's really cool stuff there that I'm a part of, do- working with Dr. Ken Keithley and Benjamin yeah. Quinn. Yeah. Uh, so really neat stuff there. But I'm also really passionate about um, the London Lyceum, which me and my friend Brandon Askew, we started that probably three years ago. And yeah. it started as just kind of a fun idea about doing podcasting. And it's morphed into a, trying to build a real institution to serve Baptist churches, those who are interested in more confessionally reformed sort of theology, as well as more philosophical theology, because yeah. I'm finishing up my PhD in philosophy at the University of Birmingham. So I love You're those sort lot, of things. Doing lots of things. Yeah, I want to ask more about the podcast in a minute. You also, you did your master's work at Southern, is that right? So I did an MDiv at Southern okay. uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and then I came and did a THM at Southeastern, Southeastern yeah. and I'm doing my PhD at the University of Birmingham mm-hmm. in the UK, not in Alabama. Not in Alabama, yeah, yeah. They don't, so they don't, they don't do PhDs in Alabama. No. Um, hey, tell us, where you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in the St. Louis area, so I did live on the St. Louis side for a brief time, probably, I don't know, six to eight years, something like that, and then for the most part, we spent the most of our time growing up in on the Illinois side in yeah. Edwardsville, Illinois. Okay, yeah. Uh, where my dad was a pastor for 20 plus years before recently moving and relocating to Pinehurst, North Carolina to gotcha. take a pastoral role at a church. Gotcha. So just, just south of where we're at right now. Yeah, we. I think I played basketball against SIU Edwardsville yeah. Uh, yeah. back in the day Murray, at Murray. Um, so you grew up in obviously a believing family. At what age do you think you came to know the Lord? And So 
by the Lord's providence, I, he revealed himself to me when I was seven years old. Um, I just started asking questions. I don't remember why. My, my dad was gone at church still. Uh, I mean, my mom had gotten home or, and my brothers were already home and just started asking questions, I guess, after the Sunday sermon. Mm. And my mom just sort of like laid out the gospel for me. And so I went in my room, went into my bunk bed, and as a sprightly young seven-year-old decided to write out my confession of mm. faith wow. to the Lord. So my parents still have the note card somewhere where I wrote it out. That's incredible. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I was baptized like pretty much immediately after. I think it was like three or four days, Wednesday night church, okay. get baptized yeah. uh, right away. So it, cool, cool little story for me anyway. Long term, are you, so you're obviously doing PhD, uh, pastorate, seminary teaching. What, what are kind of ultimate goals? I don't know what the Lord has for me in that area. So I, I am open to either one. Um, I think there was a time where I was very much like, I'm only going to do pastoral ministry. That's the one, one thing I want to do. And as time has gone on and I've built a family, um, I've wondered maybe academics is more for me. Now, I did just write an article saying, if you're in seminary, you should not go the, the academic route. Go be a pastor, please. So I, I definitely think the local church is, is where it's at. But I do think, at least for me and where the Lord has placed me, that maybe academics is the right vocation for me. Yeah. I want to ask some questions in a little bit about both the the London Lyceum and the John Gill Project, which we're going to talk about, and why you think it's actually beneficial for the local church, not just for the academy. Uh, but before we kind of get into some of those more in-depth questions, we, we, we like to ask some kind of fun questions to get to know our guests. Uh, I kind of jokingly call it family feud. So I'm going to ask you these quickly. Just answer first thing that comes to your mind. Uh so first one, favorite book that's not the Bible? You know, I don't... It's a tough one to answer. I, I never have a good answer for this. And a couple of them that I guess come to mind, maybe they're, they're really formative books for me. So one of the books that really changed the way I read the Bible was Jonathan Pennington's Reading the Gospels Wisely. Mm. It challenged my paradigm of how I think about Scripture and how I understand it. And it's really opened up this whole world of where I think this is the way the whole tradition of the church has really been wrestling and thinking through scripture rather than a more narrow, this is one size fits all uh, approach that I was sort of taught and reared in, in uh, that was sort of modern fundamentalism to some degree. Though I do think, I mean, Calvinist Institutes was pretty important for me because that was one of the first big systematic sort of reformed dogmatic sort of approaches that I read. And it was, I found it warm and inviting. Same thing with Augustine's Confessions. Mm. He was one of my first introductions to sort of the more older patristic sort of era. And I remember reading him thinking, I can actually understand this guy and he's relatable. Yeah, He's telling these stories about, you know, peer pressure and all these things. And I thought, this is really neat. And so those are really formative sort of books for me. So they would probably all three be up there. You a sports fan? Uh, of course. Okay. So favorite team and favorite athlete of all time? Well, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Okay. Uh, biggest. I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan next, okay. which... You know, how did that happen? Uh, growing up in St. Louis, they didn't have a football team at the time. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. The Jaguars were supposed to go to St. Louis. They're going to be uh, St. Louis Stallions. I did not know that. And they got switched over to Jacksonville. And so I was a Chiefs fan at the time as a little as a kid, and they kept getting beat by the Broncos. And so I was like, well, let's switch to Jacksonville, who just beat them. What was that, ninety six or ninety seven yeah, really, in the playoffs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And. It was a good decision for about three years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Last year was not a good decision. <laughs> they struggled. All right. Uh, I did ask you this a little bit off air, but favorite character in the office? Favorite character in the office? I probably, I do like Michael Scott a lot. Okay. So yeah. I just, but I don't know. I, I really enjoy everybody's nuances in that yeah. show. So I don't know if there's anyone that I, I dislike. I think 
probably Kevin would be second. Kevin is hilarious. I was listening to a podcast of his the other night, uh, and I obviously love. I think Dwight's one of the best characters in oh, TV yeah. history. All right, let's talk more in depth though about what you're what you're doing, um, particularly with podcasting and the John Gill Project. You, you you've mentioned briefly uh, the London Lyceum. Tell us what what that is. Uh, you did you know you and I've talked before. This is it's the guys on there are mainly Baptist guys, but it 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 branches out beyond that. Uh, yeah, so just tell us a little bit about the podcast and and what you're trying to accomplish with that. So what we tell people is the London Lyceum is a center for analytic Baptist and confessional theology attempting to promote serious thinking for a serious church. So in doing that, we've tried to create something like an intellectual culture, is what I like to say, of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Now to do that, we don't just talk to Baptists. We do want to recover our Baptist heritage and our Baptist history and promote that. But we've also endeavored to talk to people who are very different than us across the spectrum to get us thinking about different topics. So when it comes to the podcast, if you're listening, you could listen to a whole range of things. You might get Michael Haken talking about Baptist history, or you might get, I think today, Eric Hagedorn talking on about William of Ockham. Oh, wow. So you've got a wide range of things that we're discussing, but we always end up, me and Brandon, the hosts, are both Baptists. So we end up talking about, you know, how does William of Ockham impact with Baptists today? Yeah. Like, is there anything that we can glean or learn from him? So if you listen to the episode today, Ockham's one of the first to talk about the separation of powers between church and state. That's a hot topic today among Baptists. Yeah. So Baptist thinking, maybe there's some resources here to think about political theology from somebody like that. So that's sort of the spectrum there. Cheerful confessionalism. Uh, unpack that. We don't, we don't, uh, yeah, with our, in our social media world um, and just the current climate, it's cheerful uh, and, you know, generous, charitable conversation yeah. is not really how you think of social media. Talk about how y'all try to bring that to bear and why that's important for the the task that y'all are trying to accomplish. Yeah, so I think it's important because when you look at the qualifications of an elder and different uh, requirements of a, just a, a general Christian in Scripture, you find those uh, terms like gentleness and meekness and kindness and being open to reason. So I think fundamentally that's what's driving it. So like James 3, I find really influential on in how I think about what we're trying to do with the London Lyceum especially things like charity and uh, cheerful confessionalism. But I, the cheerful part, I mentioned that because I think a lot of people who think of confessionalism think of something that's dry and arid, mm. uh, something that's a little bit in the ivory tower that's because they're so into the details that they are a little bit rigid and just obnoxious about things. And so we wanted to sort of flip the tables then and say, you know what, you can be confessional and be fun and cool and really kind about it. Yeah. You, you can bring this to bear as something that's helpful to people in the local church that can encourage them, that can give them guidance, the things that we can be happy about it. We can be bringing this to the table, not because we want to say, look, you, you missed the eye here yeah. when you were giving your Sunday school lesson, but more of something that can assist you as an aid. So we bring it alongside and say, look, this is something that will really help you out and can encourage you. So you don't have to feel like you have to do it all alone. You have this whole tradition here saying, we can do this together. We're working mm. together to do this. So that's sort of the impetus behind that. That's good. So, so serious and fun. So yes. the, the, and, and I, I like that. I want to ask a practical question. So a lot of people that listen are obviously pastors or people considering pastoral ministry or just leaders in the church. Um, you know, there, there's the, the adage sometimes is uh, we should just be about mission and not about theology. We all know why that's 
falls flat on its face because being about mission is a inherently theological thing. But why should being serious about theology matter for just the, the local church pastor who's just trying to love his sheep? Well, I think there's a lot of ways you could answer this, but I'll answer it this way. I think every single pastor in at least America and probably across the, the world is going to be encountering more and more questions, concrete questions like this. I was born a biological male, and I feel like I should be a woman. Mm. You need serious, high-powered theology to work through that. It's not just a one-off scenario. This is the way what people are breathing, the air that they breathe now. That's what Mm -hmm. they're being taught in school. And you can't just simply rely on something like the yuck factor of that's gross and that's weird. That is not sufficient in today's climate. You have to have a serious, high-powered theology to understand and handle those things with both care and clarity. Mm. So I think that's a simple example of why you want serious theology, because you need that as a pastor to deal with these complex pastoral issues. But also, I think it gives you high power theology. I mean, that's what fuels your preaching ministry. Mm -hmm. If you want to exalt Christ to the maximum degree, you want to be able to do, do it with the most exalted language and most important ways to describe who God is. You don't want to do it. I mean, Preaching, obviously, if you're teaching the text, the Lord will will land those things in the way and apply them as, as the Spirit leads. But there is something to that exalted preaching where it's it's fueled by this great big God theology that is going to encourage your parishioners more. Yeah, and I and I can understand the the people who say who would think, man, sometimes these conversations get so down in the weeds. I don't know how that would even be applicable to to the person in the pew. But that also is, is swinging the pendulum way too far because uh, we, we're we called to love the Lord both with our mind, which will then fuel how we love with our heart and, and soul and so forth. Uh, and so this is an important task of the pastor. Not every pastor is going to be called to do a PhD in Birmingham like you are, but we're all called to love the Lord with our mind and then also shape those who are in our care uh, so that they're doing the same. And obviously, as you've already brought up, there's cultural uh, things that are happening right now uh, that we just have to have really, really helpful answers for. I want to ask uh, some questions. So we, we've started doing uh, interviews about former SBC presidents, kind of thinking Baptist history. You know, one of the things you are working on uh, is the John Gill Project. So I wanted to talk about John Gill. Uh, let's first just tell me uh, what is the John Gill Project. Then I'll ask some bio questions about John Gill and some more questions and dig in there. This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc and they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 So the idea of the John Gill Project is we want to republicize and almost repopularize the work of John Gill for a modern context. So I think new young pastors or even older pastors, uh, students, and just laymen in the church, we want to have resources of John Gill in their hands that they can actually use and read. 
So us at the London Lyceum, H&E Publishing, which is a Canadian publisher, and then uh, the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, which I think is housed at Southern Seminary, I think so. headed up by Michael Haken. We've partnered together to form this project where he would say, we want to just republish a lot of his works in ways that people can understand. So it's not, he's got a magnum opus, <laughs> the body of divinity and the body of practical divinity, which it was republished in 2007, but it's a one volume set, a thousand plus words, and it's the tiny, tiny little font that you need a magnifying glass to read. <laughs> yeah. So most people are not going to pick that up and read it, especially your church members. So what we've, we're trying to do is say, look, Gil has some really helpful, strong, robust Orthodox theology that's high-powered for Baptists yep. and can serve those churches. So we're going to republish different formats of it. So we'll take portions of that or portions of other things and publish them as one volume, little sections from it. So mm. you can say, look, the divine attributes, mm. I'll pull that 250-page section, make one volume of it. So you can have just that on your shelf of Gil. You can go through your church member, take your church members through that. And you have a solid resource because what I found, there's this recovery of these awesome Orthodox uh, Christians, especially from the Protestant Reformation, that have been helping people to think through all sorts of different topics on the nature of God and Christology and different things. But as Baptists, it almost ends up they're always Presbyterians, they're always Dutch Reformed, they're always these things, which is fine. I love those. I mean, yeah. Herman Bavink, he's one of my favorites. But there's like no Baptist resources on this. And Baptists have great resources. They're just hidden away or they're in handwritten, you know, the actual cursive where most people aren't going to get, have right. access to it. So we're trying to bring access to these resources, particularly to John Gill, because he's one of the greatest theologians that Baptists have. Tell me, just give us a little bio about who, who was John Gill. Uh, you, you know, obviously, he's a, a theologian that you guys believe is worthy of us seeing his, his writing, but tell us just who he yeah. was. So Gill, pastor theologian, born 1697, dies in 1771. So if you want to place that in context a little bit, think British Industrial Revolution and American Revolution, you know, mm -hmm. 1760s, 1770s, right when he's getting closer to his death. So he's in that sort of period. Uh, he has other contemporaries, Jonathan Edwards, I can't remember his he's, dates. So 1690, so he's within, you know, 70 years at the beginning of the JLJ and Baptists in general. But yeah. Yeah. So he's he's early, early on. Yeah. So he's an English Baptist. So he's right. born born in in England and pastors in London. Uh, he pastors at the same church for fifty, almost fifty two years. Oh wow, that's Would, that's impressive. It's the church that Charles Spurgeon eventually takes over. That's right. So you've I got knew the, that. <laughs> Benjamin Keach is the one who starts the church, and Gill uh, takes it from. I don't remember who was in, intermediary there, but you have Keach and you have Gill and you have uh, Spurgeon all at the same church, which is which is pretty neat. Um, one of the cool things about Gill, if you're not familiar with a lot of English Baptist history, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, the, the premier universities, Baptists aren't allowed to attend those for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's only for Anglicans or, or the Church of England, or the people who are actually part of, part of um, state church sort of function. Baptists excluded from this completely. Hmm. And yet, Gill is one of the most brilliant uh, linguistic guys that's ever lived. I mean, he... he he knows, he reads the whole Greek New Testament by the time he's 10. He teaches himself Hebrew. He knows Latin. He's proficient in all these things. So if you read, actually, if you actually go read his unedited text and everything, you're going to find him like footnoting Latin and Hebrew and stuff constantly and debating all these things. Mm -hmm. You think that is incredible that you self-teach yourself 
all of these things. And yet he's first and foremost a pastor. So he doesn't go into the pastor to say, I want to just publish stuff to become well-known. He publishes because his church pushes him to do these things. And he always, they become, his stuff comes out of his, his pastoral preaching, right. and his pastoral ministry. So he does these things and then he turns them into manuscripts and turns them into text that ends up be, getting published. So I think Gill is a great model because he's very careful with his theology. He, he, he's serious about it, but he's also first and foremost a pastor that never leaves his heart, that never leaves just everything he does is being colored by the pastorate, but he's also very, he's just orthodox. Mm. So there's a stream, you know, Baptists, as we know of them, you get to the 18th, 19th, 20th century, you get some, all these aberrant, crazy views. You don't really have that with Gill. You do have some issues with what's called eternal justification. So if you know about Gill, that might have been thrown to you, well, he's a hyper-Calvinist. I was going to ask about that. He's not a hyper-Calvinist. I don't think. So Peter Toon argues he is and would be at the forefront. Nettles and Timothy George argue that he's not. uh, This is on the Wikipedia page, by the way. Um, that, that's, that was how well my research is. Right now. <laughs> uh, so they, so there's obviously debate on this. And I think even just growing up, like the assumption was that he was a hyper Calvinist and, w- and without digging in, you just probably the perception as he is. So talk to us about why you disagree with that and why we need to know that. So I'll be honest, Nettles was one of my teachers. So that does form my opinion yeah. to some degree. So I have this just natural disposition to say, no, he's not. Um, uh, but Haken thinks, I think Haken would say, he might be. Okay. So Haken's moral, but Haken's part of this project saying we need to republish John right, Gill. So right. clearly he thinks it's not as a serious enough of an issue to say, let's not do this project. Um, the reason I don't think it is, is because I think of hyper-Calvinism as a belief that you shouldn't evangelize, essentially, because you shouldn't give the free offer of the gospel because people are already either condemned or saved. And so you don't evangelize. But mm. you don't see that in Gill. You see him continually offering the gospel to everybody indiscriminately. Mm. There is no exception clause that says the gospel is only for the elect. He offers the gospel indiscriminately to all. And therefore, I would say he's not a hyper-Calvinist. So even if you have a belief in something like what he has in eternal justification, where basically you're justified before you actually have faith, mm. I think even if he has that theological impulse in practice, He's saying you evangelize to everybody indiscriminately. So I would say that's not hyper-Calvinism. Now that's, I think, an improper view of justification, but it doesn't impact him in 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 a negative way. Now, I do think down the line, people who might be influenced by that can take that in the wrong direction. Right. So you just have to be careful about those sort of things. But on the whole, Gil is just straight up, straight-nosed, orthodox, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. That's good. Uh, who else did he influence? Who are some other well-known guys that he that he influenced? Baptist? I mean, he's influenced a ton of people. I mean, Martin Louis Jones, for instance. He he said, "Gill is not only a man of great importance in his own century, but a man who is still of great importance to all of us." And if you think Martin Louis Jones is great, well, if he thinks Gill is that great, then yeah. you, you should pay attention and know you know put up your ears. He Gill was affectionately titled Doctor Voluminous. <laughs> uh, during his time, and he was one of the most influential Baptists coming out of the 18th century because he had written 10,000 plus right. uh, pages uh, of material. So he's countless people have been influenced by him. I mean, Michael Haken, one of my favorite uh, Baptist historians today, is greatly influenced by Gill. Uh, has Tom Nettles, you mentioned him, greatly influenced by Gill. So a lot of these guys who are important in recovering our Baptist heritage and identity have been deeply influenced by John Gill. 
So I think that tells you something, that he's doing something that's helpful for us Baptists. I want to ask a, maybe, a, maybe this is a big question, I, you know, I don't know where we'll go with it, but um, we talked a little bit about this with the London Lyceum, but what are the hopes for this for just, the, again, the average member in the pew? But maybe uh, even intri- more intriguing question, what current issues that Baptists are facing do you think John Gill will help us think through? So like current hot topics that he might help us think about. Well, I think there's probably two hot topics that he might help us think about. The first one is about the doctrine of God. So there continues to be discussion about this. Uh, so I think if if you're a little bit nerdy and you followed some of the stuff that went on online back in you know 2015, 2016 about sort of the nature of the Trinity, uh, understanding of eternal functional subordination. If you don't know what those are, go you know Google them or something. I'm sure you'll you'll find. I think Brandon Smith has this awesome bibliography over at their maybe it's maybe it's the Center for Baptist Renewal or maybe it's at their actual website, Biblical Reasoning or something we can find all the stuff that went on with this Trinity d- debate. But Gill is extremely helpful here. So he would give you a straight line. This is how we should understand the nature of the Trinity in an orthodox fashion. So I think he can be very, very helpful there. I do think Baptists are also wrestling a lot with political theology, mm. and he does write significantly on this. And being an English Baptist in a, in a period where Baptists don't have the same rights, right. I think he can challenge some of our own just natural dispositions as I'm growing up in, as an American, this is the way it should be, to think, wait a second, let me actually take that off, my American hat off and think just as a Baptist. Mm. How should I think about politics as a Baptist? Um, so I think just working through some of those texts can be really influential. Any He's, nuggets you'd give from, from that right now? I know that's a probably a big question. Uh, yeah. From his political theology? Yeah, I, yeah. just in the I'm not... I'm not a total expert on this. So my friend Ian Clary, who's a professor at Colorado Christian, is writing an article for us for the London Lyceum's annual print journal on Gill's political theology. So I'm excited to read that and learn more myself as he engages that material. Good. I I do think, yeah, that's obviously a massively hot topic. And so I'll be um, interested to to read that. Because I think one of the things that's, that's helpful when you get in the midst of these current debates, it's easy just to kind of see just the current time it does help us to be shaped by people who have dealt, dealt with similar or even different things and think through how are they, because if, if our response and even our thinking is not at least somewhat consistent with figures from history, we need to ask ourselves, are we being deficient or wrong? And so, uh, I, you know, I love this idea of recapturing some John Gill, um, you know, writings, as a Baptist history guy, I, I probably would consider myself a nerd in that area. Who who are some other figures you guys? Is there going to be more projects in the future and more Baptist theologian historians that might be trying to recapture some of their writing and make them more accessible? I think there definitely will be more in the future. I don't know who that would be just yet. I don't have the bandwidth to do it. Right, sure, yeah. So I'm excited to see. Hopefully, this is one of those just the initial domino effects. Right. People realize, wow, we have all these awesome resources that I didn't realize that we had. I, I've been so caught up in buying the, the latest book that came off the shelf that I didn't realize that there's resources that are 10 times as helpful that have been sitting in archival rooms that people, you need people to go find the copies of the manuscripts to go type out exactly what it is because it's never been typed out in a computer before yeah. and make it accessible to people and say, I want to do that for all sorts of people. I think Michael Haken, I know I've mentioned him a lot. Uh, so the He's he's definitely a guy in this area who I, I, I definitely check out things he does. So he basically says, for Baptists, if we don't take care of our own history and go promote it and go keep, keep 
keep up with it. No one else will. So hopefully this is sort of just that nudge to say we need more people in this area. Uh, don't just get caught up in the hot new topics. Maybe go back to some of our Baptist forebearers and say, I want to answer this question about whatever it is that's that's new, that's that is pressing, and say, I want to find someone in Baptist history who can be a great resource for this and mine their thought and then just almost utilize them uh, going forward. I know Andrew Fuller, there's a huge critical edition of Andrew Fuller ongoing right now. Andrew Fuller is a great resource that people need to be aware of and mm-hmm. be engaging with. But there's others, Benjamin Keach, William Kiffin, who who need their works republished in actual good modern type setting. There, we have a lot of Baptist stuff that's been printed off by very small mom and pop sort of publishers, which I'm thankful for. But it hasn't been done to the quality that a lot of people are going to be accustomed to or want to purchase and use for their church. So if we want people, actual members at our local churches being able to have access to this, it needs to be in a format that is accessible to yeah. them, that is exciting to them, that's not off-putting. Yeah. You know, there is a, especially in Baptist churches, that's one of the things we wanted to start with the podcast, was push against this idea of Baptists are against thinking and against knowledge. But there is a serious danger. If you hand somebody a book that looks like it was written in the 1600s, it turns them off. Yeah. So we want to have something that looks like it was written in 2022 right. that can actually say, oh, that's cool. I do want to read that. Any other guys? You, so you've mentioned um, Kiffin, Keach, Andrew Fuller, obviously Gill, Spurgeon. Any other Baptists that you're like to our listeners, hey, these are some guys you should you should check out. I know there's probably a lot, but maybe just one or two. Abraham Booth is one that I think you should check out. One of my friends, Garrett Walden, is working a lot on John Collett Ryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's a contemporary of Gill. And yeah, and also then influences uh, his son as a friend of Fuller's. Yep. And, and, and and he's got Gateway this famous theory. like story about talking to Fuller about, you know, if, if God will save the heathen, he'll save him. Like just trying to like stamp out his desire to go to, to India. Now there's there's questions about if he was it, being sarcastic or not. Gotcha. Uh, so I take it that he was being sarcastic um, mm. because he was a little bit socially awkward and just didn't the joke didn't land appropriately. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> now he's getting judged for it hundreds, yeah. you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later. So uh, that's good. And, and, and you can even get a taste of some of the men mentioned in Devers' Polity book, uh, like like Keach and some others. And so that's at least a place to get some introduction. And it, it really is wonderful as we think about even things like regenerate church membership and, and other things. They just, the way they wrote and, and the way they handled that. I mean, we're having all these debates right now, um, just re- reading things this morning about open membership. Uh, these guys uh, wrote things hundreds and hundreds of years ago, talking through these things and even defending uh, our positions on membership and baptism and so forth. So check those out. I do want to ask, um, maybe this will be a final question. You've mentioned multiple times kind of recovering Baptist heritage. When you think about Baptist heritage, uh, theologically, what are you what are you thinking? So when you say that, what are the kind of key... I think, you know, obviously we could, we could line out some key Baptist distinctives, but just talk through that briefly. So the way I think about it is I want to go to confessional documents that have been adopted and confessed by groups of local churches rather than just individual thinkers. Because when I think, what does it mean to be a Baptist? I want to say, what has, have Baptists in general said, I want to confess these things. And in large part, Baptists are in agreement and in lockstep with the Protestant Reformation. Doctrines on justification, doctrines on the nature of God, doctrines on 
all sorts of things like that. You're going to sanctification all across the regeneration. We're, we're in lockstep with these people. So I think that's, first of all, we're, we're orthodox. Uh, that's not really distinctive in a sense of saying, like, <laughs> I'm different, but it is just important to remember that for the large majority of things, we're not different. We're the same. What comes in that I think is distinctive is a particular hermeneutic of how you read scripture, particularly how you put the covenants together, because that ends up shaping how we think about the nature of baptism. I think when it comes to Lord's Supper, you end up, there's various views, but there's no like one, this is the Baptist view on how we think of it. I do think there's a majority position that would go along with something like Calvin's spiritual presence, if you're familiar with those things. I think that's probably the majority view where it's this sort of means of grace, effectual grace, just it's encouraging you. It's not just, I don't just remember, it also encourages me spiritually. Sanctifying um, grace, not salvific grace. Yeah. 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 So, But when it comes to baptism and the nature of baptism, the mode and the subjects, what is distinctive, obviously, is we think baptism should be only applied to those who profess faith in Christ. And the reason that that comes about is not just because we say that it's because there's a hermeneutical way of putting together the covenants. We say that there's a disjointed nature between how God was working in the Old Testament and how God works in the New Testament. Not because he's not regenerating people in the Old Testament, not because he's not indwelling people in the Old Testament, but because of the way he, he's structuring the covenant community and he wants to apply the sign. We would say the way we read scripture, especially things like Galatians 3, says, no, we the, the true children of Abraham are those who profess faith. Right. So we apply the sign to the true children of Abraham. So that's going to shape how the covenant community of the church ends up getting put together. We don't include the children of believers because they haven't professed faith. Uh, we only include those who profess faith in the membership, which makes a big difference in how the church functions and how the church works. But when it comes to other things that are distinctive about Baptists, I do think the that sort of understanding of the local church ends up shaping pol- political theology, the separation of church and state, because not everyone is baptized into the church now, mm-hmm. because the church is a regenerate community, it is no longer able to be locked. It's not as if you are born, baptized in the church, and you're a member of the, the, the society in general. You're not just born into the church. So these things become separate. So now you have two spheres almost, you have the secular kingdom and you have the kingdom of Christ. So I think that does really push forward as sort of a two kingdom sort of theology. So I think Baptists are distinctive in those sort of things, especially. I think there's other nuances you you could debate a little bit. I mean, there is debate about things like open communion versus closed and closed communion. I wouldn't want to say that this is the Baptist way. I think there's majority positions. But I think even when you look at something like the Second London Confession of Faith, if you read the appendix, it does not address. Yeah, they basically say, "Look, we have a majority opinion, yeah. but there's enough dissent on this that we don't want to put this in the confession and elevate it to that sort of status." So I do think that there are pastoral implications for those sort of positions, but I wouldn't want to say that this is. You, if you want to be a Baptist, you have to take a position on this. So that. That's we, you know, it's funny because I just just completed for our local church um, a, a white paper on why we are close communion. Again, if you're thinking open, we would open communion means anybody that's a believer um, can come to the table. Um, sorry, that my phone's going off. It means anybody can go come to the table. Close communion means like faith, so they have been baptized by immersion. And then close would be just the members of that church. So we have a close position. 
uh, we would um, invite anybody who's been baptized as a believer. So we've been working through that. We've talked about this on a previous po- previous podcast as well. Uh, it is it does have pastoral implications because we've had um, you know people parents were trying to work through some things and, and others. That it's a it's an interesting thing. So looking back in my research, I did go back through most every Baptist confession, at least the 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 you know the more popular ones. And that was interesting. Second London has a footnote and appendix on why, obviously, there must have been debates between open and close at the time. Now, you know, you can go all the way back to the Didache. Uh, First London actually is a close communion document. All the BFNMs are close communion. New Hampshire is, uh, abstract is, but it's interesting. Second London is is unique in that it's not. And so there's a, there's a lot of debate around that right now. It'd be fun to talk about that another time. Uh, well, hey, tell people how they can can kind of find the podcast, the website, and all and the all this kind of stuff. So you can find us if you have whatever podcast app you have. If you listen on Apple iTunes, if you listen on Spotify, just type in the London Lyceum. You'll find us there. Uh, if you want to check out our website, thelondonlyceum.com, we've got articles. We we like we've been trying to do these new series of articles on different topics where we get diff- people with different views on it and say, okay, you disagree with you, publish an article. And then we're going to have a summary article from one of the guys at the London Lyceum that sort of adjudicates the debate a little bit from a Baptist perspective, because we'll have non-Baptists say non-Baptist things and argue for that. And we want to, we don't want to just leave that hanging out there. We want to have actual genuine debate. So go there. Uh, you can also find the John Gill Project there, and you can find ways to donate to the project, because we're working with a small publisher, because big publishers don't care to publish big Baptist history things like this. So you need funding for this. And because you want proper proof, proof texting, you want proper or copy editing, you, you want all the different things that go into making these things a actual usable resource mm-hmm. cost money. So we, if you want to donate to the project, even if it's 10 bucks, that can help serve the project and serve other churches. Uh, we commend you if you have the, the funds to do it. I mean, give up everything costs $15 now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Give up one, you know, half of a meal at Chipotle and you've got 10 bucks already basically and donate to the project. And now you've got Baptist history uh, on your, on your table to, to enjoy. That's good. Well, Jordan, appreciate your time, brother. And we thank you guys for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, Baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, babbis21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.